Welcome to Grasp Podcast, where we discuss the motivations and experiences that brought educators and researchers to academia. My name is Michael Sanborn, and I'm a PhD student in computer science at Vanderbilt University. This is a conversation with Katie Chang, Assistant Professor of Computer Science, Electrical and Computer Engineering, and Biomedical Engineering at Vanderbilt University. Dr. Chang runs the Nerdy Lab, and her research seeks to advance the understanding of the human brain through methods for analyzing and interpreting functional neuroimaging data. Dr. Chang completed her PhD in electrical engineering at Stanford University. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. If you could just start by describing your first exposure to electrical engineering, computer science, the oh, brain, sure. you kind of sit at this really interesting intersection. Oh yeah, uh, well, um, my first exposure, let's see, so when I started as an undergrad, I was interested in many things. I did not have an idea of what I wanted to major in yet, so, except maybe physics. I actually started off on a path toward, toward maybe being a physics major. Um, but uh, at MIT, a lot of people I knew were taking computer programming classes, and I had no programming experience. That was something I'd not really encountered in high school. Um, but it struck me as something interesting. I thought, okay, maybe I'm going to try it in my second year. Um, but um, yeah, I guess so. The summer after my freshman year, I ended up. Um, doing research in a lab that was at the intersection of computation and neuroscience. And so the way I got into doing engineering later on was actually kind of inspired by this experience. <clears throat> so um, I found myself in a lab that luckily accepted someone who had no experience in these areas, um, learning that there was a field called computational neuroscience, which just fascinated me. Um, and I saw what the other students in the lab were doing, which involved, you know, coding and, you know, building um, electronics that, you know, tried to simulate how the brain worked. And um, I thought that was really interesting. And they were telling me that, you know, some of them had majored in electrical engineering or computer science, and that, you know, that was a nice way to learn about modeling systems in general. And so that if I was interested in going into brain research in the future, that that might be a path that I could take to learn that background. And so um, the so my second year of undergrad started to take more classes in um, computer science and, and electrical engineering. So at MIT, EECS was um, the same department, and so mm -hmm. you could choose different paths within um, that um, department, you know, either computer science, EE, or um, the kind of EECS hybrid route, which mm -hmm. is what I did. So I ended up taking like some classes in computer science and some more focused in electrical engineering. And that was sort of my, um, how I got into that. Excellent. Yeah. It sounds like you got started pretty early and fortunate to have maybe like student mentors kind of helping you chart out what you were wanting to get into. Uh, mm -hmm. So you mentioned MIT, you did your PhD at Stanford. Those are two mediocre institutions, um, joking of course. <laughs> Can you describe like how your experiences differed between those two schools, maybe certain mentors that um, really helped you along, uh, challenges and pros and cons of doing research at each? What were your uh, kind of takeaways? Gosh, where to start? So um, I really liked being in both places, and I had very different experiences at those places, but I think, you know, it's hard to just 
compare them directly, it's because I myself was in kind of different stages of my education when I was at each place. And mm-hmm. so I was an undergrad at MIT and um, a lot of my memories are like staying up all night with other students, working on really hard problem sets. Um, you know, uh, a lot of people I knew there had really interesting pursuits that were like creative engineering projects that they would do it. You know, in the in the early hours of the night, and so it was really fun to like watch people like, you know, um, build build things and uh, you know, um, come up with fun projects. Like some people were making, well, uh, I think this was made before my time, but there was like a bathroom server somebody like made where you could like look up which bathroom stalls were like unoccupied or something as their hobby. Um, Someone had made a motorized couch so you can drive around campus, like sit on the couch and go around. And like people just knew how to do these fascinating things. And I was more of a spectator in that because I didn't Mm -hmm. know how to, you know, build things as much when I came in. And so it was fun to see what people came up with. And so, um... Yeah, and I um, yeah went to Stanford for graduate school, and I guess yeah my again it's like it's just like my experiences were different there because I was um, you know a graduate student, and but I really loved just the feeling of the campus. I like you know the weather was beautiful, yeah. um, so it's like a lot of my memories were like also doing hard problem sets, but like sitting outside in the sunshine and doing those. Um, I can talk a little bit about my PhD advisor, um, Gary Glover at Stanford. Um, he is, you know, a highly energetic person. Um, you know, despite being a really senior person in the field, was always, you know, still, you know, debugging things at the MRI scanner, which is, you know, I did MRI related research there. Um, you know, every day just like writing code, thinking about problems, talking with students, and really engaging the students in his thought process, and just kind of like, you know showing us an example of um, what it means to be like a great scientist and Mm. so I think it was just like you know felt really lucky to be in the group that was like closely interacting with him and you know trying to do research (laughs) um, as a grad student so um, yeah he's one of my uh, you know mentors that we still keep in touch so that's great yeah that's that's excellent I think it's always uh, again one of the motivations is uh, you can see kind of some of the idiosyncrasies of people that are very prominent in the field and kind of enjoying and, and having those anecdotes about, uh, I mean, debugging MRI machines, I don't know where to start on that, but um, amazing. So I'm now wondering if you can kind of discuss like a top, like a top-down kind of discussion of the brain, so arguably one of the most complex objects that we are aware of and central to like how how we do what we do and what makes us who we are. So how do you, I guess, begin to abstract and tackle something so complex? Yeah, and I would say that firstly, there's like so many different perspectives through which people have been approaching brain research. So there's not, I mean, you know, maybe there's like at times becomes like different prevailing views for how the brain works or different analogies people use to study the brain. Um, But yeah, there's, you know, in terms of, um, my own work, um, I use functional MRI as one of our primary techniques for measuring activity from the brain. 
Um, and so just a little background on that. Um, it's like an MRI scan, but instead of coming out with just a picture of the anatomy of your brain, we actually record from the brain over time while someone is lying in the scanner and we get this kind of dynamic picture of how um, the activity in the brain looks you know, across the whole brain mm-hmm. um, at a resolution of around millimeters, so it's wow. not bad. Um, it's not a direct index in, or in direct indicator of um, you know, neural spiking or something like that. It's more macroscopic in terms of you know, what the measurements are reflecting. So it's actually picking up on changes in blood oxygen um, that are you know, associated with changes in um, neuronal metabolism. And so we get this kind of slower signal that's picking up this you know, blood oxygen um, fluctuations over time across different regions. And um, one thing that's kind of been, um, I guess, a shift in the field over past decades is like from you know, studying different brain regions in isolation to thinking about the, whole, the brain as a whole integrated system or um, network. Um, and so one thing that fMRI has allowed us to do in the human brain is to you know, associate the signals across different brain regions and try to you know, infer something about their interactions and how um, different brain regions may work together um, as a network. Um, and so you know, that's, um, there's been a lot found in the last you know, 20 years or a little bit more now um, in fMRI in terms of um, reliable systems that you can identify in the brain. So I can scan your brain, I can scan someone else's brain, and um, you know we can identify um, certain areas that tend to show um, correlated signal changes. And um, of course, it's hard still at the macroscopic level to say, you know, what do these correlated um, fluctuations? You know, what exactly does that mean? What is it exactly doing at a particular point in time? Mm-hmm. But um, it seems like there's a lot more patterns and a lot more, you know, robust organization that you know people have been able to delineate over the years with fMRI. And so, um, yeah, <laughs> it's been an interesting area to kind of see what the data can tell us, and also to try to, you know, there's. You know, neuroscience has a longer, a much longer history than fMRI. You know, with animal research, with um, electrophysiological measurements, and so then trying to connect some of the patterns that we see with fMRI to some of that more um, foundational knowledge about the circuits of the brain. You know, from you know more invasive studies of animals and, and um, whatnot has been. You know, that's you know, the field is kind of um, facing those different questions and challenges. Mm-hmm. One of the core themes of your thesis work was, again, using fMRI, as you mentioned, to understand temporal properties. So in my mind, I'm thinking, I think where a regular MRI, and please correct me if I'm wrong, gives Mm -hmm. you kind of a single picture of the brain, and fMRI can provide like an animation, maybe. Absolutely. Uh, So I'm wondering if you can speak to maybe like what bottlenecks existed before, or why the temporal dynamics were... Uh, maybe less studied previously, and then sure, sure, yeah, no, that's a great question. And so, um, uh, around the time you know where I was when I was starting my PhD, there have been a lot of discoveries about what I've just referred to in terms of these large-scale networks in the brain. So you know, identifying certain regions that seem to have correlated signal fluctuations that are correlated to one another and maybe interacting. Um, so even though those networks, like the inference of how a network looks is from a dynamic measurement, still our picture of the network is 
static in a sense. So, you know, we've said, okay, nodes A, B, and C have highly correlated signals. Maybe they form a network. But then the picture I would draw is like, you know, a, B, and C are in these like circles, and then there would be like edges connecting them. Like, but mm -hmm. you know, it's a static network depiction. Um, but what had been known from you know studies, um, largely outside the fMRI field, although there were st there were a number of studies starting to look at this with fMRI, is that even the the interactions between brain regions change over time. So if we make a picture that says like this is a this is a network of the brain. Um, you know, how, <laughs> to what degree does that hold in any given moment, right? Mm -hmm. So like, do certain regions change their associations over time? And so uh, can we, you know, think of the brain not as, you know, having just these networks that live inside of it, but also as having these networks that are kind of changing their associations over time, kind of like a, a, a dynamic set of networks. Mm -hmm. And so um, with fMRI, that wasn't commonly studied um, around that time only because, um, well, the you know you need to collect data for long enough to be able to um, look at those changes in network structure over time, um, and particularly because the measurements we get with fMRI are pretty slow to begin with. So, um, as I measured, as I mentioned, it is um, a blood oxygen proxy to neuronal metabolism, and it's evolving on a slower scale. So, instead of this millisecond level resolution that you can get if you were to say directly record from neurons like their electrical activity, mm. we're seeing more of a slow changes in blood flow that are accompanying that, but it's playing out more on time scales of seconds than on milliseconds. And so to get enough cycles of that to make inferences about the dynamics, um, you know, you have to record over a longer window of time. Um, but because a person, <laughs> a, a test subject, you know, who's kindly volunteered for an fMRI study mm -hmm. has to stay in a tube, you know, it's a very unnatural setting. And mm. um, it's also, there's some costs associated with using the scanner. And so fMRI scans tended to be as fast as you could, you know, make them usually. Like you want to be efficient in how you can map activity in the brain, map networks in the brain. And so um, a lot of research was kind of like um, conducted with shorter scans. Um, but the field has been kind of gradually shifting more toward getting longer data acquisitions mm -hmm. in individuals instead of, say, you know, short data acquisition, but over, like, you know, a lot of people. Um, and so, I mean, ideally, you'd have the best of both worlds and you'd have, mm -hmm. like, long scans in individuals and also sample, you know, activity from a lot of different individuals as well. Um, but if you get longer and longer scans, then you're able to kind of start to map those dynamic networks. And that just became something that people gradually started doing a bit more of. And so now um, the field is kind of getting more information about, you know, what um, kinds of configurations these different networks of the brain find themselves in. Mm -hmm. And um, at the same time, there's a lot of questions about what those dynamic changes mean, you know, what function are they tied to, right? We can see them happening in the data, how much of it is noise, how much is, has a real functional role or like a brain state change like falling asleep. And so um, the research in our lab has been probing that a lot, you know, not only techniques for trying to measure the signal dynamics and the network interactions over time, but also trying to record data from other sensors. So we put a respiratory and cardiac sensors on, on people while they're in the scanner and have EEG recording electrical activity from their brain and trying to see, you know, can we build up a more complete picture of um, of these, you know, network dynamics if we, you know, supplement that with information about changes in the body and um, about what, you know, kind of the electrical information tells us um, about what brain state a person may be in. And so it's been really fascinating to kind of probe this direction. Sure.
can you talk about uh, so you mentioned fMRIs they're kind of like <laughs> this tube I've had a few myself for like oh, great. athletic related situations oh, but sorry. Uh, it seems like it's pretty constraining like I the the cursory review of some of the literature that you've worked on I've seen uh, kind of like recording activity during like a resting state during yeah. a reading state during a certain like excitation state of like right. taking in some stimuli right like what is I'm sure there's a lot you can speak to about like what is left to be desired oh, but yes. um, I guess the more functional counterpart would be FNIRs for my uh, limited understanding but like yeah, how do those yeah. compare in terms of like fidelity and penetration and then like right. what types of activities would be really ideal like I'm thinking oh, of yes doing a workout or establishing a mind-body connection or some type of coordinated um, Yeah, no, movement. this is this is um, really like a, a great topic because, yeah, fMRI is powerful um, in that, you know, you have the ability to get these measures across the brain, you know, um, and even in kind of like deep areas of the brain, like the brainstem and in the thalamus, and these areas are um, less accessible to technology that is sitting on your scalp, you know, mm -hmm. like EEG or like um, FNIRs. Um, and so while it has some of those benefits, as you alluded to, it is really not a natural situation to be laying in a tube. And so um, I think that, well, firstly, fMRI uh, research has also been trying to um, shift more toward um, as, as best as we can with the constraints of lying in the MRI scanner, mm -hmm. um, more kind of naturalistic paradigms too. So instead of just, um, you know, say we're trying to map out, you know, different areas in the visual system, you might like show some kind of very artificial stimuli like flashing lights or, you know, um, these uh, checkerboard type patterns. Mm -hmm. um, but more toward um, things you'd encounter in the real world. So like watch a movie um, mm. or, or like, you know, see this, um, you know, you, you see yourself in a, you're using some kind of maybe VR, uh, you know, display, see yourself in a, um, in a forest or something. Mm -hmm. And so um, being able to study the brain in that, um, in more natural settings has been, you know, a, it's really opened a, up a lot of new directions, both in the analysis of the data and in you know what we can study in terms of cognitive neuroscience. Um, but uh, I think that you know we really can't have people out and moving in the world with that technology. And so um, FNIRS has been is, is one of the fantastic um, modalities where you know you can have people drinking coffee, <laughs> or reading books, you know, they're in the real world, um, and you're studying brain hemodynamics as well. And so um, it's, um, the sensitivity is more toward the surface of the brain, uh, just in terms of what the signals can pick up. Um, EEG also, um, you know, you have this cap of sensors on the brain that are um, picking up, you know, electrical potentials, but it is, um, you know, it's, uh, it's giving us a complementary picture of the brain, um, but you know, in, in some sense, and in some sense, people are trying to um, use these different techniques to, um, uh, you know, in, like use the information from these techniques together to try to build up a more complete picture. Um, and so there are some technologies that you can actually gather at the same time. So we can put an EEG cap on a subject in the MRI scanner and through looking at how those signals relate, maybe there's things we can learn about fMRI that we never knew of by being informed from the EEG and things that you can learn from EEG data that we didn't know about, but we, you know, when we have fMRI together in certain um, uh, scans, are, are able to kind of like map these signals together and mm -hmm. make um, make it uh, you know more powerful. Um, 
but yeah so yeah it's uh that's that's a exciting question about how to um kind of use these different modalities to study different aspects of brain and body function and then how to kind of combine these techniques together you know if we can't even if we can't gather them at the same time how can we at least like you know merge the types of information that we're getting separately from those types of recordings it's fascinating i have so i have like two Two questions that are related. Uh, I noticed, so on your lab site, you discuss understanding physiological underpinnings of yeah. neuron activity, and uh, you mentioned, so now I'm kind of imagining like the hemodynamics, like the yeah, fMRI yeah. results, they give you, maybe is it like apt to give an analogy of like the, of whatever the, the trails of an airplane, like you're like, oh, okay, yeah, this yeah. is evidence of a prior right. activity. So there's, right. there's some time delay there, but mm -hmm. uh, you also alluded to uh, like, you said cardiac monitoring and EEG monitoring. Yeah, There's like yeah, physiological yeah. entanglement. Oh yes. Um, so I'm wondering if you could speak to like how do you distill between those, and then how would you know if you know applying some type of AI model, there is a tenable predictive power in a yeah. maybe lighter weight signal for neuron activity. Oh cool. Yeah. So um, right. So like one thing um, that that you mentioned is you know bold signal is this. Kind of indirect indicator. It's a little time delayed and slow um, in terms of you know indicating neural activity, but um, it's also not because it relates to a blood oxygen measurement. Um, although it's sensitive to neural activity, it's not specific to neural activity in the sense that anything, other processes in your body that are happening that can change your blood oxygenation mm. in your brain, those can also change your bold signal. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, if you actually hold your breath for a few seconds, you can change your bold fMRI signal <laughs> for, you know, by several percent and, and um, oh. even much more than you can get from the cognitive uh, sort of neural activity that's mm. happening in your brain. Um, and so... Uh, I view this as both a confound as well as an opportunity um, sure. for fMRI. Um, like many things in fMRI, actually, it could be you know useful information or noise depending on the exact type of study you're doing. And so, if you really want to get to the activity of the neurons, you want to do your best as best as possible to try to model the influence of other th you know breathing and cardiac related influences on the signal so that you can disentangle those. Mm -hmm. And so, the approach that we have been using is. Um, like you mentioned, you know, we're, we're recording um, sensors of, you know, of people's breathing, uh, their, you know, heartbeat and other measures of the blood flow in the periphery. So in the fingertip, for example, you can see the some indicator of the, you know, blood volume, blood flow in your in, in there. And, um, and you can actually find these very strong associations with the fMRI signals measured in your brain. Um, so it's partly surprising and partly not that surprising. So <laughs> I don't know. I remember when I first saw that, I was like, wow, that's like very interesting how coupled those are. Um, how do we deal with that? And so we've actually been using some techniques from EE and signal processing to try to model that. So mm -hmm. you can say, can I... Um, can I use tech tools from linear systems analysis, for example? Can I say that there is some kind of linear um, transfer function that maps between the dynamics, you know, in your cardiovascular system and what you're seeing in the brain oxygenation signals? And so even though, you know, so we started in our own work with with linear models, and I know that it's not perfect because there's actually like, you know, a lot of nonlinearity um, in physiology uh, that's not being modeled, but um, we can capture a fairly substantial portion of the variation in the fMRI signals in your brain by modeling this, um, what, you know, the predicted component based on, um, you know, 
you know, physiology um, in your body. Um, and through that, you know, we found that if you then try to peel off those components that relate to physiology, you can get more specific looking, you know, brain network maps or brain activity maps, and it can, you know, um, increase your sensitivity to mapping activation in individuals. Um, but then, you know, the other part of that's quite interesting is that because there's this vascular response, you know, blood flow response in your brain to changes in your body, that might also give you some interesting information about the, you know, physiological health of your brain. Mm -hmm. And so if you can imagine, like, there are certain disorders where the, the vascular uh, in your brain is, is compromised or starts to, you know, degrade with, um, you know, some type of pathology. And um, can we detect that by trying to model, you know, abnormal responses in the brain to mm -hmm. something else happening in your body? Um, there are also theories that um, by, you know, maintaining good health of your vascular system and your brain, you know, it also is related to the health of your neurons um, and your brain because, you know, it's all this, you know, squishy substrate that is your brain. <laughs> and so, you know, there's a strong interplay between the vasculature and the, the neural um, tissue. And so, um, you know, by modeling um, these vascular um, responses, um, you know, can we can we actually um, model the interconnections between the kind of neuronal components of the fMRI signal in the vascular components and you know what do they um, say about each other and what do they say about how you know, people are able to function in the world you know if you were to probe someone's um, you know ability to pay attention or to solve a puzzle or something like that like is there any relationship that we can detect with how people um, behave so it's very fascinating uh, I have a lot of I guess homework to do, and I'll probably ask you for some pointers or some of your favorite literature spots. But I wanted to follow up with the question you were, or the what you were discussing about solving linear systems. So, like on one side of the question, I'm really curious um, broadly in signal analysis, kind of uh, to what degree is there, you know, this search for um, a like so in transformation space, you yeah. you do some type of um, Again, the reading that I've done, there's like the Fourier transform, there's oh, yeah. a wavelet transform. Mm -hmm. You're mapping between um, these different domains to better understand what a signal might mean. So yeah. basically, what open questions are there in signal analysis, or is the wavelet transform sufficient? That's one that I keep seeing that oh, comes up. Yeah, yeah. And then uh, how does that play into uh, like one abstraction of the brain regions um, is like neural circuits like sure. in contrast yeah, yeah. to neural networks you have like yeah. the um, neural circuit default mode network which has the word network in it but <laughs> basically like what is the brain doing in a nominal state and like what regions are talking to each other or what groups of neurons are talking to each other so yeah the to summarize <laughs> the things that are left to be desired in signal analysis yeah. for MRIs and yeah. then how those lend interpretability to neural circuits yeah so signal analysis wise I mean um I would say that um, you know one kind of puzzle is where is the most relevant information in our signals, and so you know we record these time series from different parts of the brain, and we have a lot of them because we can, as I mentioned, like sample them at millimeter scale resolution. So you have these you know um, pixels, or they're three D, so they're voxels, and each one of those has a signal. And so um, you know one challenge is um, a there's that's very high dimensional. There's 
tons of signals. <laughs> How do you kind of like jointly analyze them to distill the most relevant information? Um, and there are tools, you know, from signal processing and uh, machine learning that allow us to try to find um, some of that, um, some of the, the major kind of axes of variation in this data and mm -hmm. try to parse out what components of that most relate to maybe some other measure like disease or like behavior. Um, but the, the wavelet question, um, you know, the wavelet transform um, allows us to look not only at time, but also in frequencies. Um, and so in, in certain types of neural measurements, um, there are kind of well-defined oscillations that happen at certain frequencies. So in EEG, um, if you close your eyes, if you're relaxed and you close your eyes, then you'll see this really prominent oscillation that's around 10 hertz. And it's actually amazing. The first time you see it, you're like, that came from my brain. It looks like a sine wave. Wow. Um, that is funny. Wow. And so like, that's like one, um, you know, prominent oscillation where you can say, okay, this seems to have a fairly well-defined frequency band. And there are a few of those um, that have been identified. Um, in the electrophysiology EEG literature. Now with fMRI, um, it's been a lot less clear in terms of what time scales the most, or what in, in what time scales does the most relevant information lie? And this may also be like, you know, a question that's like, there's not a general like useful time scale, but it's more mm -hmm. like dependent on what exact question you're answering. Maybe certain types of um, functions or brain states evolve on different time scales. Um, and so, but it's more of a jumble in terms of the fMRI um, signal looks more like a kind of one over F-like characteristic. It has more, um, you know, uh, a power in the lower frequencies and then that diminishes to higher frequencies. Mm -hmm. But there, there are less clear things like oscillatory peaks. Like you don't see these kind of like local bumps in the power spectra like you do um, in the EEG so often, except for what's, you know, known from the transfer function of like, you know, hemodynamic brain, you know, vascular responses to neural activity that has a particular shape. So, um, but still, it's not a clear kind of oscillation frequency. Um, but nonetheless, um, we and a you know a number of other groups have also taken, you know, frequency domain type approaches to fMRI to try to probe that question a bit, to try to like watch the brain for a while and see, you know, in what time scales do you have coupling and uncoupling between certain networks, um, you know, uh, what, you know, beyond what you might expect randomly by chance. Um, and so I'd say that's kind of an unsolved question, but it's maybe um, as much of a neuroscience related question as a signals question, you know, like we, it, it's, it's closely tied to a neuroscience question. So one thing that I am really curious about and trying to understand a little bit more is like we obviously are both owners of a human brain and we are studying the human brain. So I wonder to what extent you account for or consider bias mm -hmm. or, uh, you know, what you've been discussing is, you know, a signal quantitatively is the numbers are on, on the on the page or on the screen and so there's the question of like what does it mean but then uh, I can imagine cases and I could be misguided but you have some sort of subjective assessment from the patient like what are you feeling right now or oh, yeah. uh, there's like this I don't know if it's quite like metacognition but like how do you correlate or associate 
like their signal patterns exactly yeah no that's an interesting question and and also comes from like having been a subject in a bunch of people's experiments over time too you know i would jump in the scanner and i'm like okay wait i'm supposed to be thinking about this thing and not about this thing but like then i'm just trying to think about the other thing and like you know it's um but they can't tell that they're like stop thinking about that exactly and i'm like oh no i hope i'm not messing up their study (laughs) um and you know or falling asleep you know like some Mm, people actually just fall asleep in our scan and actually that ended up being something where it's also like like a confound but also also useful like thing um, to have in your data as well in fact like the, we have this whole branch now studying drowsiness and you know what happens when people fall asleep in the scanner which oh. I'm happy to talk more about if you're interested but I now we actually of... encourage people to fall asleep in the scanner for our studies I don't need encouragement <laughs> I'm, I'm partially claustrophobic but okay. I remember getting a shoulder MRI and like I drifted off and then like jerked awake and they're like we have to restart I was right. just like oh lovely yeah. Um, so, I mean, that is uh, something that's not always accounted for, is what is the brain state of the subject during the scan. And so, and um, one reason that, I mean, fMRI, there's been a lot of progress in fMRI towards, you know, mapping certain um, signatures that we see in fMRI signals with disease, but it's not yet, you know, the go-to for clinicians, like doctors, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, you wouldn't say, like, okay, you, you know, like, fMRI scan is, you know, your first line of, um, you know, going to, you know, um, shape your your course of treatment, although, mm-hmm. you know, that's the goal, and that, you know, it's, grad, you know, the field has been trying to improve, and it's like, you know, I, we hope that someday that that, um, that may be the case, but one reason is because there is a lot of variability between subjects that not is not always explained. Um, you know, we can model, you know, a lot of things we know about people, like demographics, we can, you know, like age and, um, and so forth, but what they're doing in the scanner at the time does make a difference to mm-hmm. the signals that we're measuring. And um, people started to, like, there. there's more of a focus on this now. Um, I think that, you know, in earlier days of fMRI, the emphasis was more on group averages. So, like, what brain patterns are in common across a group? How does it differ from this other group? Mm-hmm. But now it's like, what brain patterns are unique to an individual? And in that question, um, you know, something that we need to discern is what brain patterns are specific to them being in a certain state when their brain is being scanned versus Mm. a trait of that individual or some other aspect that we're interested in understanding. Mm -hmm. And so it's like, I could be really nervous in the scanner and that's what the scan is picking up. How much is that driving the difference between my brain, you know, scanned on that day and my brain scanned on another day, which Mm -hmm. there is some difference. Um, And so people have been trying to address this in different ways. One is through questionnaires. So you'll actually ask people like a bunch of stuff about like what they were thinking about or feeling when they were having their scan and try to model that when you're doing the analysis. some of the physiological recordings we're getting are actually useful for that as well. So we can kind of get this physiological state of the person and see how much you know variation um, that accounts for in our data. You know, the heart rate, you know, <laughs> breathing. You know, people will show really interesting patterns when they're um, being scanned. Um, you can tell when someone's nervous. I had, I had somebody who I was like very worried about them because their heart rate was like at 105 during the scan. And oh, I was wow. like, I hope that's not, they're not nervous. We'll, a little high. Yeah. We'll ask them. We'll check in with them, see if they're doing okay. Um, but yeah, um, and I mean, so we have to, I think it's a hard question because we don't have a perfect indicator of what somebody is thinking about in, in any moment of time, right? You might get some feedback on like oh on average I you know I might have fallen asleep I was thinking about my day um, but 
just how much <laughs> that impacts a scan is also like an interesting question mm -hmm. and like um, there may be certain um, things that you know um, certain states you want to put your subject in in order to you know uh, address a scientific question too like so we as I mentioned before you know we'll either try to stimulate people's like uh, brains like you mm -hmm. know by showing them some some you know pictures some uh, having them listen to some music etc and like we're trying to study a specific aspect of their brain function um, and so you know the state that we induce for the subject is also important in terms of what we're trying to study and so yeah there's a lot of things we can say there I'm curious if you could linger on a couple of things. So one of them is like there's this gap between clinical practice and mm -hmm. then kind of where your lab focus is. Mm -hmm. So like uh, how far do you see or, or like on what horizon do you see some of your research results like impactfully applied uh, at the clinical level? And then uh, yeah, what like how does AI contribute to this, mm -hmm. this duality that you mentioned, mm -hmm. which is leveraging population-based uh, trends and patterns versus like N of one trends and patterns or like signatures of activity that are unique to an individual? Yeah, so we have a um, few collaborations with people in the medical center um, trying to address different um, neurological or neuropsychiatric disorders. Um, one is, is epilepsy. And, um, you know, like my colleagues in the, um, in VUMC have been, um, you know, one of them is a neurosurgeon, another one is an engineer who has been studying the brain, you know, using fMRI and um, developing methods for studying um, epilepsy and other um, disorders. And so it's been really interesting to collaborate with them and learn about the world of clinical problems. And to be mm -hmm. honest, like my, um, I've done mostly kind of I guess basic science slash methods development through most of my um, PhD and postdoc and coming to Vanderbilt was really interesting in, in, in getting to like work with a lot of clinical collaborators and so I'm myself I'm learning you know what are the areas that we can have um, you know the most impact um, for and studying um, different disorders and so um, you know it's kind of hard to put a number on like how close are we are to you know XYZ but like mm -hmm. there's already um, you know a lot of advances that um, have been made in epilepsy in terms of what's called pre-surgical mapping and so say you know you need to do a surgery on somebody for epilepsy to kind of remove the part of brain tissue that's generating seizures mm -hmm. um, you know um, and so you know um, fMRI will help you um, to localize um, areas that you certainly don't want to, <laughs> to certainly want to avoid removing because you know that specific, you know, very important functions live in those regions, like language, you know, et cetera. Mm. You don't want to cut out someone's language area if you don't have to. Oh, so um, there's a, like a lot of work in terms of trying to map people's uh, language areas or other areas to make sure that you can try to, you know, account for that when, if you have to do a surgery. Um, but also like, you know, trying to figure out the brain circuits that are disrupted during these, um, you know, kind of, uh, during, you know, in, in different disorders. Um, and so, you know, the better understanding we have of how, you know, brain networks are disrupted, the more that we can also um, decide how to intervene. So are there particular drugs that target particular systems in the brain? Are there, um, can you do non-invasive brain stimulation, which is something that is, you know, really um, become a big research area. Um, you know, something like um, 
transcranial magnetic simulation. I don't know if you heard of TMS, but you kind of like, oh. you can <laughs> essentially like zap to in people's terms, brains. In terms of yeah, yeah, and try to, um, you know, activate or inhibit very specific areas of the brain. Um, and that is proving useful for um, depression, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so one way that people are trying to use fMRI is also to, um, you know, if you can map out the, um, the brain areas that function as a network, um, that can also um, assist clinicians with localizing the particular area in someone's brain that you want to target with one of these stimulation therapies. And mm-hmm. so it already is starting to have an influence. Um, so, you know, it's not like we're like, yeah, it, it depends exactly probably on the exact, you know, on the, on the application, exact application as mm-hmm. to like how far away we are, but it definitely is already having an, an impact in the clinical world. I have, um, well... Oh, I think I didn't answer all your questions, so you remind me if I, <laughs> if I forgot no, a couple that was, of them. <laughs> that was great, I think. Well, I wanted to get into a little bit of the, uh, well, so a couple things. Okay. One of them is uh, there's this work on the analysis of the signals providing interpretability to oh, yeah. brain activity. Do you see, um, from like a cynical perspective, are there any ethical considerations? Uh, companies like Neuralink, which are mm-hmm. doing, like I, th- I just feel like that there's like this inescapable dichotomy of, we're making headway and like really significantly improving the lives of people with severe neurological yes. issues, but then also uh, it seems like in in progressing towards that end, we might be inching towards something um, akin to what you were jo- like joking about is like, hey, don't think about that because we can see from the signal what you might be imagining or um, what thoughts you might have in your head. So oh, it yeah. seems certainly like <laughs> pretty far-fetched, but some of the demonstrations um, from Neuralink and I was listening to the head neurosurgeon speak about some of their progress as well Uh, it seems like that is becoming like incrementally more palpable so how would you Mm -hmm. address or consider those oh yeah so I mean that's really interesting I mean the more that we can I mean so one of the research areas that has become you know, of, of wide interest is this brain decoding, right? Like, um, given some brain activity measurements, what was the person thinking, mm-hmm. you know, um, or what was their intention? Or, um, you know, there's some, you know, I, I know there, there was, there has been, um, you know, work on can we use fMRI for lie detection <laughs> and things oh. like that. And this definitely opens up, I mean, the whole, you know, mind reading sort of area definitely opens up a lot of ethical considerations. You know, we definitely don't want to misuse this kind of technology. Um, you know, we're trying to refine it more and more, you know, using machine learning AI uh, methods, you know, for trying to, you know, map patterns of brain activity to, you know, specific thoughts or perceptions, etc. But yeah, it is a really, um, valuable and timely question to discuss the ethics and how um, you know what what may come upon as these techniques are improved. Now, um, we're still pretty far from doing something like you know general purpose like mind reading with fMRI. I would say okay. um, fMRI is a pretty, neuro- <laughs> pretty uh, noisy measure, and it's um, you know thoughts are so subtle that mm. you know. And how do you build up a you know from um, if you're going to try to learn an association between data and you know some brain state, then you have to have an awful lot of data where you know the state um, or you know like you can validate <laughs> that that's what you're doing. You know, training data, and so um, that's also still a challenge for um, for you know for some types of um, brain decoding questions. Um, but 
yeah, I I just say that that's I would kind of you know uh, that agree with you that this is a an interesting area that we need to think more about. Mm-hmm. I wanted to so discussing some of the disorders that come up with the brain and um, providing um, you know addressing that or methods to better understand kind of the underlying mechanisms of like what caused those. Uh, to manifest, I wanted to basically the the end of this question is going to be, what are some of the most prompt like so you've obviously kind of mentioned some, but um, maybe like open problems in neuroscience and neuroimaging, and then I'm curious for your impressions. There's a book that's apparently popular. It's called The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat uh, by Oliver Sacks, and there's some f- pretty fascinating, if not depressing, examples of places where the brain I don't want to say like goes wrong but it's not performing in the the way that is like expected so mm-hmm. like there's one of the anecdotes is um, a patient has prosopagnosia which is like a person is married to someone else and they don't know their face unless there's a certain set of stimuli or there was one about I think a professor who like couldn't tie his shoes unless he was singing a song <laughs> so like what do these like astronomically um, I guess like small like edge cases tell right. us about the complexity of the brain and like how we might go about tackling those. Yeah, so um, I think these cases are fascinating. Um, I have to say that I'm probably not totally qualified <laughs> to speak to so much on this question just because I have, um, you know, um, a, uh, I'm not familiar with a lot of different areas of cognitive neuroscience mm-hmm. um, that I've, you know, worked on certain applications. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, there is still so much that's not known about how the brain functions, and these edge cases are, you know, really interesting for testing ongoing models of, you know, how, you know, people are thinking of how the brain works. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, yeah, I think I don't know <laughs> more to say. What um, what was the beginning part of your question? I was I, um, before that. Uh, the, so like uh, open problems in oh, like neuroimaging, like if, if you had a <laughs> list of things and you're like, oh please, if I, and of course none of this is like black or white, there's oh, always nuance, right. but just if you had a better understanding about topic X or like oh, um, right, right, what are right. people really kind of chomping at the bit for yeah. at this point, if you um, can distill even those. Right, into... I mean I, uh, from my, so I kind of work on this, um, you know, my, our, our research areas and like right, neuroimaging um, methods, which is sort of the at the intersection of like you know, data acquisition, data analysis, and applications. And um, you know, in terms, so I spend a lot of my day thinking about our measurements. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, um, I think that the clear. So, firstly, um, the reason that a lot of research is going on in this um, methodological domain is that we still have a lot of open questions about. Um, what the signals we measure um, mean, mm-hmm. um, how to um, separate signal from noise, mm-hmm. and how to improve the spatial and temporal resolution of our measurements. Um, and then about you know beyond you know improving um, the kind of data acquisition, you know given that we have just a whole bunch of data, then you know then comes the post-processing side of how do you form coherent pictures of how the brain works based on these, mm-hmm. um, uh, based on this large amount of data. And so, um, I mean, there has been steady progress toward all of these. Um, and, you know, we 
work in particular on, on dissecting the fMRI signal, hoping that this can advance human neuroscience since it is a non-invasive technique. You know, we can don't have to open up people's brains and poke electrodes in in order mm-hmm. to study them. I mean, those are very valuable studies, um, but, you know, can't just be done on the somebody who, you know, is not otherwise going to have a medical procedure. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, a lot, but, but um, you know, with the limitations of non-invasive imaging, you know, there are a lot of open questions about how we interpret the data that we are getting. And so, um, yeah, I'd say <laughs> that's one general area that we and others are trying to make headway on is, um, you know, the, the more information we can get from these non-invasive measurements, then the clearer the inferences we can make about the brain. I think that summarizes a lot of what we discussed pretty well. I'm wondering, so speaking of, like, disambiguating or dissecting the signal versus noise, I'm yeah. wonder if, I wonder if you're willing to comment on or um, maybe like at least discuss your experience with this concept of, uh, there's like this quest for, people are saying AGI, like artificial general intelligence, so I'm wondering if you can comment on your perceptions of uh, the degree to which a comprehensive understanding of the brain could inform progress in um, what seems to be like emulating uh, what we know is like biological intelligence where something can uh, or like an entity can like consider optionality or um, adapt to a changing environment and like set goals mm-hmm. and and work towards goals in a resource efficient way or you know that's right. some rambling <laughs> definition right. but no but I actually like you know um I think that right like so the more that we can understand how you know understand principles of brain function the more we can build systems that integrate some of those powerful elements <laughs> into more flexible kind of, you know, adaptive processing in, um, in the world. So, um, and it's interesting. I mean, I, I wonder how much systems we build like that will still look exactly like how the brain does. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe what we'll end up doing is uh, taking inspiration from certain principles of how the brain works, but still building an artificial system that doesn't exactly mm-hmm. mimic it. Um, I'm kind of interested in how, where that's going to go <laughs> in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, I am not directly working on that, although I've been, you know, in, in watching it very in, with a lot of interest. You know how mm-hmm. that's um, how that might um, be carried out. Um, in the past, I have worked on some research that uses inspiration from biology to to build systems um so when i one of my um one of the labs that i worked in as an undergrad was using principles from um brain development um and how you know cells kind of differentiate in forming a body you know in a developing organism um to getting kind of distributed computational units to carry out some kind of objective so you know can we map those principles of biology into you know how um you know how we can build improved computing (laughs) systems uh and so i remember finding that really fascinating and you know i think that you know there's there's um, a lot going on there dr chang i really appreciate your time today i learned a lot in this conversation and uh really appreciate you sharing your work with me and excited to continue following uh, what your lab works on. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Katie Chang. Be sure to check out the timestamps in the description if you'd like to jump around. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to check out other episodes of the Grasp podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.
If you've enjoyed other episodes, please subscribe and rate the show five stars if you feel so inclined. As always, thank you for your interest. 